We're doing a best of. Hello and welcome to the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of spreading awareness about the Palestinian struggle for justice and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Gazan Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And Mikey Intifada, if you think from the river to the sea is a call for genocide, but chanting death to Arabs is A-OK. If you could step away for a minute from burning olive trees to tweet that the IDF is vegan. If you spent the last month advertising pride in a place where gay marriage is illegal. If you call yourself a native Judean, but you were actually born in Brooklyn. If you've been calling for democracy in Cuba and apartheid in Palestine. If you think God gave you the land of Palestine, but you don't even believe in God. If you were rooting for the Jews who escaped concentration camps with spoons, but think the ones who did it in Palestine are terrorists. If you claimed Mansov as a taste of Israel, even though it's not kosher and it's not yours. When asked if it constitutes stealing Palestinian cuisine, a Zionist named Yakub said, hey, if we don't steal it, someone else will. Did you say that about Mansov too? No, that's a little joke. I just oh, I'm like, wait, what? Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. And if you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources at palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com. And feel free to follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Check us out on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. Today we are joined by Farah Nabulsi, a Palestinian-British Oscar-nominated and BAFTA award-winning filmmaker. Michael, I, I I don't know you so well, so this is a first, but... Um, That's okay. Not many people do. You know, it's okay. <laughs> I think you two guys should be on radio. You have such good radio voices. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, really? but we're also pretty, <laughs> so people should see our face. So my memories of Palestine as a child were, you know, visiting my Jiddo's uh, home, telling stories by the fire in the, in the courtyard. and It honestly didn't feel like I was watching a movie, but it felt like I was actually following around a real father and his daughter in the occupied West Bank. It, it had a very documentary style to it. And so I think maybe here it's helpful just to provide the audience with a little bit of a reminder that, you know, what the film shows is the Palestinian experience in the occupied West Bank today. With the present, you chose to focus on the reality of segregated roads and checkpoints. It's that, you know, innocence of children not only being humiliated themselves, because you forget that part, you know, they're not just witnessing their parents go through this kind of humiliation, but they too are being humiliated. So it's almost like a double injustice. And so they watch their mothers and their hero fathers being subjected to sort of a, a military power with really what could only be described as impotence. When we ask the impossible from Palestinians, when we ask them to accept this reality, that what we're doing is very simply dehumanizing an entire population of people. Anyone who, who considers even this idea of, of their freedom of movement being controlled, as simple as even this story is, would never accept it for themselves. Why do they accept it for someone else? Well, they'll only accept it for someone else if they don't even consider that person to be someone else. Israeli philosopher Yeshayua Leibowitz, who was a public intellectual, 
concerning the dehumanizing effects of Israel's brutal occupation of Palestine on the victims and the oppressors. Leibowitz said, we have to ask ourselves, where is this youth of ours emerged from? Young people who had no mental inhibitions about committing this atrocity? What inner motivations for such acts could have been at work here? This youth is not a mob, but the product of a Zionist social education. Today we are joined by Leila Al-Haddad, author, activist, policy analyst, and journalist. She co-wrote The Gaza Kitchen with Maggie Schmidt, an award-winning cookbook that takes readers on a culinary adventure of Gaza. What I love about the book is that Obviously, in addition to the recipes, there's also articles. You really get a very deep understanding of what it's like to live and cook in Gaza. And of course, on the infamous moment that you spent with Anthony Bourdain in 2013 in Gaza, where you filmed the Parts Unknown episode together. But I've really learned from your book is that there's so many dishes that I didn't even know existed. Learn about the histories of Palestinians from a much wider, greater part of Palestine, because 80% of the population are not from Gaza proper itself, right? Yeah, they're refugees. They're from all they're over refugees. Palestine. In all of Palestine, Gazans are known for being the ones that love spicy food. So where do we get this love from? I remember growing up with my dad always having to have every dish with a side of like three really hot chili peppers, right? Yeah, or like jalapenos or like red chili peppers, yes. and they just bite into it in yes, between yes. bites. Eating a full jalapeno pepper is a very alpha move. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it started, hear me out, That's I think true. it started as an intimidation tactic because they were like, we're not going to mess with those people. They eat full jalapeno peppers. <laughs> love it. I love it. You touched on the port. I'd love to just talk about a time before Zionism, right? Gaza was, of course, known as a major port for travelers, merchants, and pilgrims making their way to the Holy Land. It's well known that during the 5th and 6th centuries, the Byzantine era, Gaza had a reputation as a premier producer of vintage and export quality wine. I haven't made makluba yet, but the technique of flipping it over has changed the way that I bake banana bread. <laughs> okay, that's the first time I've ever heard banana bread at makluba, you know, <laughs> said in the same sentence. So I'm here with... Gazan girl and Gaza mom. And I would be remiss if I did not ask you this question. Layla, are you pro or anti Bamya? Oh man, totally oh. pro. My Bamya. favorite vegetable in the entire world. You know, I, yes. Bamya Gate Part 2, let's go! <laughs> we are joined by the Palestinian model Qahir Harhash. Qahir, welcome to the Palestine Pod. One of the stories which recently made headlines within the context of the global intifada of unity are the anti-Palestinian and Islamophobic messages that you actually received from Zara's head of design. You published these messages to show the world what... Palestinians go through when we simply tell our stories and share our experiences. If Zara needs to correct this mistake, then they should really put out a statement where they apologize to Muslims, to Palestinians, Arabs, queer people. Because like in her messages, she offended so many people. And for me, it felt like, no, this person has a lot of influence, a lot of power. People really need to see what we as Palestinians also face and go through whenever we want to talk about Palestine. She sent you a message that was so long. 
I thought she was breaking up with you. She was manipulating the situation so that yeah. she could get the result that she wanted because she realized that her barrage of messages towards you and her approach to outing you and arguing with people in your comments failed. And so she needed to backtrack. Then she went right back to her old tricks. Zara has a long, sordid history of deeply ingrained racist hiring and customer service practices. Oh, it made her sad that you don't see eye to eye about politics. And I read that and I was like, well, how could you see eye to eye? She is supporting the status quo, which keeps Palestinians subjugated an apartheid system. So why on earth would you see eye to eye with your colonizer? It makes no sense. Very hard to see eye to eye when there is an illegal wall between you. It felt like she was trying to invent issues I have within myself, and it's something that's very common uh, with Zionists. It just feels really cult-like. Some of them even believe that if they ever lose, they should all commit mass suicide. I did not know that, but that would be convenient. You can just go back into their history of Zionism and see really who, who the anti-Semites were. Like when you think of Herzl, they were really saying that they would talk badly about Jewish people and use like the word parasitic. And, this, and say that we need to create a new look for the for the Jewish people. That anti-Semites would be their biggest ally. She held a long-standing tradition of Israeli intelligence, of blackmailing and exploiting the LGBTQ community inside of Palestine. There is a unit yeah. 8200 that tracks everyone's online digital presence, metadata, everything like that and they will blackmail people to become spies, or they will out them. Nizar Banat, who was a prominent Palestinian activist and advocate of free speech, the PA basically became a sort of subcontractor for the occupation itself, doing a lot of the dirty work of Israel. Banat was murdered by the Palestinian Authority in their custody, and it comes on the heels of him releasing a video where he was extremely critical of the PA. Palestinians who have risen up in this global intifada of unity have sent a very clear message to the PA that we don't need you. You don't represent us. Only the PA has collaborated with the occupier against Palestinians. They're trying to recruit a bunch of Jews from Brazil until they realize that some of them are black and they're like, not you. They're like, where are you from? Africa? And he's like, no. Rio de Janeiro. And they're like, ah, oh, well. Back to Somalia for you. Today we are joined by Lila June. She's an indigenous public speaker, artist, scholar, and community organizer of the Diné and Sesesas nations from Taos, New Mexico. Yeah, you know, greetings, my kin and my people. I'm from the Nanisht Ejitachitni clan of the Diné Nation, we're also incorrectly known as Navajo, the Euro-Americans. They came to this continent with basically hoarding and gaining a surplus as their primary goal. To look at a piece of land and say, hmm, how could I get a surplus out of this? Or to look at another people and say, how can I turn these people into my, my slaves? Now, that is not natural. The ability to play God is almost a sport in the capitalist culture to see how much power and control we can wield. Which planets can we get to? How much can we mine out of the earth to show nature how much we can control her? She's not there for us to control her. She's there for us to love her and be loved by her. She is a sovereign being. And our job is to be humble before her. And every single culture that has ever played God 
be it the Chaco civilization that my ancestors descend from, the mound builders, the Mayan civilizations, every one of those we tried to play God and every one of those collapsed. The Romans collapsed. Every time humans try to put themselves either on a pyramid or a towering house or a mound or, you know, a, a basilica or whatever, they always go down. And that is our gift. That collapse is creator's gift to us saying, hey, let's help you live a little more righteously. Let's help you live a little more in touch with reality that you are a part of creation. You are not the God of creation. When I was in Palestine, they would call Palestinians cockroaches. And, and I'm like, I, I, it made my blood boil because I know exactly how that feels. I know exactly how it feels for a U.S. government to come in and literally mow down your people with howitzer guns because you're literally cockroaches to them. I'm not a cockroach. I genuinely think if the powers that be had their way, they would have every Palestinian person disappear from the face of the earth. 100%. What's the best way for someone like me to become involved in a land back movement? One is to give your land back. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are joined by Hadar Cohen. Your profile caught my attention within the context of the global intifada of unity as one of the Jewish anti-Zionist voices from on the ground in Palestine. Part of what happened under Zionism is that Judaism was kind of taken and made into this racialized like hierarchy and there all of a sudden was like this Jewish supremacy. So a lot of the Jewish communities that were Arab and were part of the region like just got completely fragmented. For my parents' generation, it was a little bit different because they kind of grew up under Zionism. You grow up under such an intense ideology, you don't necessarily have the power and the courage to examine it, especially if you are dealing with a lot of erasure and trauma. Masood Hayyun's When We Were Arabs, he says, quote, memory can subvert colonial authority. It can frighten the colonizers because it allows us to reconfigure this miserable world we live in now. Depose the white supremacist, topple his statue in the public square and approach the European sector with open eyes, ready to disassemble empire. As I was coming into my anti-Zionist identity, one of the things that I was feeling really strongly was that my Jewish ancestors were like strongly supporting that and I remember it was like so confusing for me because it went against everything I was kind of taught in Jewish day schools or you know even in American Jewish institutions that it's like okay to be Jewish and Zionism is like linked. We talk a lot about physical colonization right stealing land cutting access to resources demolishing houses restricting movement etc but we don't often talk about the colonization of the mind, right? Such that some Jews from Iraq, Tunisia, embrace the idea that they are somehow superior. They try to distance themselves from anything Arab, as you've mentioned, including their own features, which often resemble that of our Palestinian cousins. A lot of the ways that it's being enacted, it's through control of the mind, and it's through perpetuation of certain narratives. And you can actually see that it's pretty influential. Like it, it has a very strong hold on people. I want to read just from one of your stories about Zionism. Okay, so now on to Zionism. European Jews came to Palestine and were like, let's create a state. But they were greatly outnumbered by the Palestinians. So they were like, hmm, this won't work. 
how about we trick and manipulate Jews from the Middle East to come join this colonial project and we will basically use them to colonize. Zionist leaders went to all these Middle Eastern cities and basically convinced them to come join, saying that this is a religious project and it's the time to come to the Holy Land. They promised them all these things, but when they got to the land, they were demeaned and oppressed in many ways. Zionists placed these communities in cities and villages right near the Palestinians so that the European Jews wouldn't interface with Palestinians. They basically used them to occupy as border cities without telling them this. The colonial court refused to make any decision on the case, but they said, hey, here's a settlement offer. Shout out to that court for putting the settle in settlement. Driving force of being engaged in the liberation struggles because you love life. Because we want to live freely and equally, and we don't want to sit under bombs in Gaza. We don't want to have our movement restricted. We want to be able to travel and go to school and work where we want and not be arbitrarily detained, not be shot while we're on our way to our sister's wedding, like Ahmed Erika. Nobody loves life more than the one who has been deprived of it. A lot of people have been speaking about the Israeli government's meltdown and and incredibly disproportionate response to decision by Ben and Jerry's. I, I thought they handled it well, personally. <laughs> Women in the army, right? Holding babies in Afghanistan. That's Mamala Harris's dream, okay? <laughs> Breastfeeding a baby through the uniform. An amazing artist, a young female activist coming to us from Gaza, Palestine, Malak Matar. Malak, you are 21 years old. You've lived almost your entire life in Gaza, much of it under siege. And you are the survivor of four Israeli military attacks on this tiny piece of land that you call home, with the latest assault taking place just a few months ago in May, where Israel leveled entire residential buildings in Gaza and wiped out entire families as they slept. From my mom's side, I always grew up with this atmosphere of beautiful painting, of the fascination of a white canvas getting turned into a beautiful masterpiece that evoked something in me. So teachers were pushing us, go out, go out, and I didn't know where to go but you might never survive an attack so the sky was a gray i looked up and and the military planes which were really scary they were so close to to the ground and everyone was running like so there was a fear so my mom picked me up my siblings to, to go home and i said i said like well i'm finally safe because i thought my school was only attacked and then after this, I realized it's it's my entire home. It's my entire city. I survived the attack and I had difficulty speaking. So the trauma affected my ability to speak. So that was quite shattering, like for young kid to describe the terror of having their home demolished and having their neighbors or, or their families getting killed in front of them. So you'd always find someone crying in the class, you know, because of the loss, because of the gap that was left in their lives after the passing of, of people they loved. You know, the attack where over 2,000 people were killed, it was genocides being committed in different neighborhoods. It's indescribable, like the injustice and, and the oppression. And especially like, you know that you are on this alone, that yes, I'm getting attacked and people who live a few kilometers away from me are living their life. You know, they're going to work, having peace in their life. The more I was doing these sketches, the more I felt kind of ease inside me. And it felt kind of like I'm running to, to a home. I'm running to a sanctuary. And that was one of the best feelings and the worst moments in my life. You know that every work that I shove gets shaked by the Israeli office. I don't believe there's such thing as ceasefire because it's a war zone. Bombings ha can happen at any second. 
at anywhere. There is no restrictions on how much Israel can throw bombings here. The mail has been shut for two months. Thousands of passports were stuck in the mail without, like, people were trying to get out, but they couldn't. Also, medical permissions. People were having a hard time getting them, although they would be like severe conditions. No, I don't want peace. I want freedom because there should never be peace when there is occupation. Today, Michael, we are talking all things related to the Great Escape. Last week on September 6th, six Palestinian political prisoners escaped from the high-security Israeli dungeon called Gilboa Prison. Reports say that the six Palestinians dug their escape tunnel with a rusty spoon while the colonial guard in the watchtower, which was directly above them, had fallen asleep. The photo that shocked and humiliated the apartheid state and was seen around the world shows a colonial officer standing above the tunnel in the morning after the escape on the other side of the prison, completely bewildered. The aftermath of the Great Escape, the apartheid state's police, soldiers, and agents from its internal security agency, the Shin Bet, went on a wild goose chase to find these political prisoners. The apartheid state also engaged in torture and abuse of other Palestinian political prisoners as an act of revenge. So we saw on social media videos circulating showing the abuse. We also know that on September 8th, 2021, armed Israeli forces raided Section 6 of the Negev prison for Palestinian political prisoners and attacked prisoners. Israel holds somewhere around 4,700 Palestinians, men, women, and children as political prisoners. Since 1967, Israel has imprisoned more than 700,000 Palestinians from occupied West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Israel imprisons Palestinians from the occupied areas inside of Israel, which is illegal under international law. According to Amnesty International, Israel's ruthless policy of holding Palestinian prisoners arrested in occupied Palestinian territories in prisons inside of Israel is a flagrant violation of the Fourth Geneva Convention. It is unlawful and cruel, and the consequences for the imprisoned person and their loved ones, who are often deprived from seeing them for months and at time years on end, can be devastating. According to Amnesty International, virtually all cases of Palestinians brought before Israeli military courts end in convictions. Most convictions are a result of plea bargains. This is because Palestinian defendants know the entire system is so unfair that if they even go to trial, they'll be convicted and given a longer sentence. About 1,300 complaints of torture against Israeli authorities have been filed with Israel's Justice Ministry between 2001 and June 2020, which have resulted in the grand total of one criminal investigation and, get this, zero prosecutions. Today we are joined by Rufik Haved. She's the debut author of the must-have children's book, Baba, what does my name mean? So this book is about a young Palestinian refugee who's essentially living in the West. It's more towards a Western audience. And she's asked at school what her name means. And she knows that she's Arab. She knows she's Palestinian, but she doesn't really know why she was named Samida. And so when she goes home, she asks her dad, Baba, what does my name mean? And so in order to explain the connection between her name and her homeland, her dad 
kind of takes her on this magical journey to Palestine. And beforehand, he tells her, you know, your name means somebody who's persistent and somebody who perseveres. And we named you this because you're a Palestinian. Can you tell us what the librarian did exactly? She posted some anti-racist Palestine content, which the library censored after they received complaints from the Zionist Organization of America, Philadelphia chapter. Between reports in the press and the public statement that the library released, we know that the administration took action by only meeting with local Jewish groups in Philadelphia, including the Zionist organization. And at the same time, they fully censored all staff voices by removing access to an internal forum that was used for cross-organization discussion. And then in their public statements, the library administration has shown that they co-signed this idea that anti-Zionism or pro-Palestine speech is somehow anti-Semitic. At the same time, they try and cling to this notion that they represent all marginalized voices. Staff report that while the administration has claimed that they updated guidelines on content development, no actual information has been shared with the staff members who create said content. And it has been publicly shared that these actions by the library admin are in line with a pattern of abusive power, institutionalized racism, and direct harm to black and brown employees. And this librarian created content on their, so their branch's social media page that spotlighted and highlighted Palestinian voices. And one of them was a discussion of my book, in addition to a book reading from Naomi Shihab Nye. So her video with Naomi Shihab Nye's book was also removed and censored. If you're a Palestinian in exile, if you're a Palestinian in the diaspora, and you grew up in the early 2000s, your family had Al Jazeera on 24-7 and was watching live footage from the second Intifada. And you were rooting for The Rock like you were watching wrestling. At the labor conference, they backed a motion urging the party to back sanctions against Israel for its illegal actions under international law. And they basically say that action is now needed, that labor should adhere to an ethical policy on all UK trade with Israel, including stopping any arms trade used to violate Palestinian human rights and trade with illegal Israeli settlements. What I like about this is that they have tied very clearly their need to act being an ethical position. And I hope that this can be an example for politicians in the US. Yeah, but didn't you see AOC cried? So that's pretty good. <laughs> hey, if you haven't stabbed a goat, are you even interested in peace? We are talking today with John Elmer, a Canadian writer and photojournalist specializing in the Middle East and Canadian foreign and military policy. He's lived in and reported extensively from the occupied Palestinian West Bank and Gaza, specifically based in occupied Jenin, Bethlehem. Support for resistance, support for prisoners in Palestine is nearly universal. It's important to note that nobody critiques the tactics that the guerrillas are forced into taking. For one thing, because everybody sees what's going on. It's everybody's families that are at these demonstrations getting shot at. The Palestinians were forced into urban guerrilla warfare. 
And that's what happened in cities like Ramallah and in uh, Nablus and Janine, places in the southern Gaza Strip like Rafa. It was urban combat and in some ways urban combat that will be studied for generations to come by militaries because of the way that the Palestinians used the terrain in the refugee camps in order to secure positions, in order to defend territory. I'm sure we'll get into Janine, but one of the reasons that the Battle of Janine happened was because the Israelis were unable to enter the camp. The small alleyways, you know, that are created because these are refugee camps. And these were refugee camps that were created in 1948 when Palestinians were driven from their homes. In Janine, it's mostly people from Haifa. And they went in and they pitched tents. And they pitched tents that went up and shared one tent peg. So tent, 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 sharing a middle tent peg. And whatever we are now, 70 years later, they're in the exact same pieces of property now two and three generations deeper. And Palestinians were able to use that landscape, that terrain, knowing it so well, you know, in part, unfortunately, knowing it so well, because they're trapped inside these refugee camps, unable to really develop outside of them. But the tactics that the Palestinians developed were fit into that, into that context. The old city of Nablus, the Casbah, the, the Warrens, the alleys around there, Israelis had a very difficult time penetrating those areas. And we are told at every step of the way that the type of resistance that we're engaging in is not appropriate. Janine was a hornet's nest of resistance. Janine sent 28 bombers in an 18-month window into Israel. Israel was freaking out about it, not because it was desperate. It was part of a concerted military campaign that the Palestinians waged fairly successfully, if you look at it on a, on a tactical level. Today we are joined by Yusuf, also known as JoeGaza93 on Instagram. He's a nurse, a social media activist, and humanitarian. Joe has shared a lot of content with us this past May, especially with respect to the assaults on Gaza. You're showing us life on the ground. You're showing us images and videos of Gaza, of the streets of Gaza. I'm actually getting to know Gaza through you. I'm getting to see the streets that I never saw. I'm getting to see the people that I never met. I'm getting to learn more about where I'm from through your eyes. Every action, there is a reaction and it is a self-defense. About the self-defense, if, if we want to talk about this, we are the, the people who have the right in self-defense. The issues are clear for the people. Honestly, we, we are getting a lot of support from the people around the world. And this is this is a thing make us happy. That's where people starting to walk up and spread the world about the Palestinian case. Support it by, by all the available ways. This is my duty toward my people, just to show the truth the people around the world about uh, our uh, issue and our situation here, especially in Gaza. You know how hard the situation is. Our conversation was interrupted by the sounds of drones, by the sounds of shelling, your house shaking. Very few people have ever had an experience like that in their life. But if you live in Gaza, you've not only lived that once or twice or three times, if you're like 25 years old, you've lived it at least four times in your life. Because ever since the Israeli disengagement of Gaza, when they removed their settlers, Israel has been attacking Gaza from above and does so every few years and commits genocide every couple of years. This is your daily reality. It's not like the normal days in, in any different places around the world. Every day we woke up in Gaza, 
we work up for a new challenge. Everybody will feel how hard it is, expect, uh, except if you lived here. The cars driver are uh, used uh, the used, uh, cooking oil instead of the gasoline because it's, uh, it's was, it was not available. Instagram taking away our link button on the Palestine pod page. We talked last week about the Human Rights Watch report criticizing Facebook and Instagram for its censorship of Palestinian content creators, specifically citing two instances where I had posts that were deleted for quote-unquote hate speech that were then mysteriously restored due to what Instagram called a mistake. When Instagram was deleting Palestinian content, the effect was that it was restricting freedom of expression on matters of public interest. That's a direct quote from Human Rights Watch. Even when social media companies reinstate wrongly suppressed material, the error impedes the flow of information concerning human rights at critical moments. We change the conversation on Palestine from one on Tuesday to, well, there's, there's apartheid here. There's war crimes happening. These social media companies are trying to find ways to quiet us and prevent us from Keeping that momentum, today we are joined by Judy Kalla, Palestinian British chef and food writer. She's the author of two prize-winning books, Palestine on a Plate, Memories from My Mother's Kitchen, and Beledi, A Celebration of Food from Land and Sea. Cooking kind of keeps me going, and my mom, this is what she used to stabilize herself, being away from her family, and she passed it on to me. I think we're really spoiled as Arabs, because I remember going to friends' houses and have dinner there, and it's one dish, and that's it. And I'm thinking like the rest is coming out next. Nothing ever came out. Have you ever thought about doing Palestinian food fusion? Oh, Laura. No. <laughs> Nobody sees the Makluba and is like, hey, was it smoked with applewood? Anybody who keeps categorized bone in their <laughs> fridge, like that's either a delicious chef or a serial killer. <laughs> I heard a Zionist say that he was actually indigenous to hummus. Hey, y'all. So... Every now and then we have an episode where we feel like we need to give you a trigger warning. And this is one of those episodes. There's going to be a lot of talk about rape and coercion. An Israeli officer raped Palestinian women in exchange for work permits. The rape occurred in 2013 and 2014. An officer's identity is still withheld. He was secretly convicted by an Israeli court in 2017. Army major threatened that he would revoke the Palestinian woman's permit to work in Israel if she reported the rape. The court also convicted him of another count of rape, which involved threats. The judges said in their ruling, he returned her permit, which he had taken earlier. The officer was convicted on two counts of rape, as well as receiving bribes from a second Palestinian woman identified only as F. Rape and sexual assault and sexual violence in general are embedded into the structures of the settler colony. It's often used as a tactic against Palestinian prisoners, be they men, women, or children. And it's certainly something that takes place at different times. I mean, whether, you know, it's at a checkpoint or if, if soldiers come to your house for a raid, whatever it may be, any encounter with an Israeli soldier, there is this possibility for sexual violence to take place. And as Palestinians living under occupation, there isn't really any recourse to this because they're subject to military law while 
the Israeli soldiers who are there on their land occupying it almost never face any sort of consequences for the crimes that they commit. And it goes back actually to the very founding of the state of Israel itself. I mean, during the Nakba, there were numerous reports of systemic rape being used by the Zionist gangs that were expelling Palestinians from their cities, from their villages. It was used as a tactic to threaten, to intimidate, to drive Palestinians out. There were reports of it at the Deir Yassin massacre. There were reports of rapes taking place at the massacre in Safsaf on October 29, 1948, after the Zionists captured the Palestinian village of Safsaf, which is in the Galilee. And we're talking about really brutal crimes. They have this technology called Blue Wolf that captures photos of Palestinians' faces and matches them to a database of images so extensive that a former soldier described it as the army's secret Facebook for Palestinians. The application flashes in different colors to alert soldiers if a person is to be detained, arrested, or left alone. Red light, <laughs> green light. To build the database used by Blue Wolf, soldiers competed last year in photographing Palestinians, including children and the elderly, with prizes for the most pictures collected by each unit. They've turned occupation into a game. South Africa, but make it Dave and Busters. Exactly. Remember how last episode we reported that the occupation is a safe haven for pedophiles? Now it's come to light that the army is actually incentivized to take pictures of children. A whole army full of pedophiles, huh? Today's guest is a personal friend of mine and an activist involved with the direct action efforts led by Palestine Action to get Elbit systems out of the UK. Max, welcome to the Palestine Pod. So Palestine Action has been killing it in the direct action space, going Going after companies like Elbit Systems and JCB, who supplies bulldozers to demolish Palestinian homes. But of course, the largest campaign has been the Elbit campaign. And for those who don't know, Elbit Systems is Israel's largest privately owned arms company, which is profiting from Israel's attacks on Palestinians. Its biggest single customer is the Israeli Ministry of Defense. Elbit has 10 different sites across the UK, including four arms factories. So what do they do exactly? Well, Elbit provides the Israeli military with around 85% of its killer drones. These drones have been used in numerous military assaults against the people of Gaza, including the latest assaults that took place in May. The Israeli army also uses these drones in daily surveillance and regular attacks on Palestinians all across occupied Palestine. The company's profits skyrocketed after its equipment was used in the brutal 2014 assault on Gaza. And this helped the country seal contracts with militaries all over the world. In addition, the bullets being shot by Israeli snipers are also made by Elbit. Elbit produces munitions and components for all Israeli attack aircraft. So this includes the Israeli F-15 fighter jets and Apache and Cobra attack helicopters. They are all furnished with Elbit equipment. Those, of course, have been repeatedly used to attack civilian areas, homes, and refugee camps, resulting in thousands murdered, not only in Palestine, but also in Lebanon and other countries as well. And Elbit is also one of the main providers of the electronic detection system for the West Bank apartheid wall that Israel has built. It was also contracted recently to make a new underground wall around the blockaded Gaza Strip. So it's not enough for Israel to be blockading Gaza 
from land, air, and sea. Now they're going underground to entrench their illegal siege even further. Elbit also sells about 80% of its equipment outside Israel. So not only are they the main suppliers to Israel, but they're also supplying their really heinous equipment, murderous equipment all over the world to various countries. So Max... Isn't that outrageous, you guys? Isn't that like the worst thing you've ever heard? The aftermath of the Nekba legalizes and formalizes that process that took place during the Nakba, but also continues it, gives it this air of legitimacy because all of a sudden now these actions of ethnic cleansing and forced expulsion are taking place by a state as opposed to Zionist gangs and militias. You have this state taking a number of measures to ensure that Palestinians continue to be expelled from their land that Palestinians who were expelled are unable to come back and that the land that is left behind is immediately taken for the state and redistributed to settlers arriving from other countries. I think the first law was like, honestly, fuck Palestinians. Okay, literally, you're not wrong. Today's guest is Noam Schuster Eliassi. She's an Israeli comedian and activist, born to an Iranian Jewish mother and a Jerusalem-born father. I get often attacked by what I say and what I think and what I do, but there is really no other choice. The more I realize what happened to me and my identity, the more I realize how huge of a role my Mizrahi identity, my identity as a Middle Eastern Jew played into growing up with Palestinians and realizing our shared narrative or how I even think about our future identity in this space without the occupation. My grandparents are Jewish. They prayed for Jerusalem their whole lives. To take weapons and settle and do something nationalistic, it's not in my Jewish DNA. Israeli Jews, we don't have to live such a life where we are occupiers. Palestinians deserve to come back. Palestinians are not unique in wanting to resist power that is seeking to exterminate them. You would Uh, think that Jews can understand this. We're talking about Rivka, Mohammed al-Kurd's new poetry book. Rivka is the name of his grandmother. His father told him, anger is a luxury that we cannot afford. Be composed, calm, still, laugh when they ask you, smile when they talk, answer them, educate them. Even though the situation that you're in commands anger and so many other emotions. They're asking him about Hamas and he's like, my boy, they're knocking down the door. What are you talking about? I wish the earth would split and swallow me. Iraq veteran cites his fear of fireworks. They think they're the only ones with PTSD. We are literate in peeling off our own skin to sleep. I cried, not for the house, but for the memories I could have had inside it. Palestine has already been one of the innovators of technology while under occupation and siege. So we can only imagine what would have been if not for this nasty militia of Zionist gangs who stole everything. Today's guest is Noor El Khaldi, Palestinian American host of the podcast Arab American Psycho. This is one of my favorite podcasts. Really, I'm honored that you guys wanted to have me on. Requests for you to come on. Several people saying Noor E, Noor E. It was me sending those messages. <laughs> Highlight all different cultures and backgrounds. Just had a guest on who's Hawaiian and it's really interesting learning about Hawaiian people because their experience, lots of parallels to the Palestinian experience and anyone who's experienced 
colonization. You could just instantly relate. Their literature at the time is talking about we're gonna colonize, they are the native people. Check the documents. I think there is very much this idea that like, if you are a hijab wearing person, it's like you are in this one little box and you're just like a quiet, submissive Muslim woman, which I am just like, who created this narrative? I, name one Muslim woman you've ever met in your life who you're like, oh, she's so docile and quiet. There are zero. Today's guest is the amazing founder and CEO of Palestinian Hustle, Samir Fidri. That's how humble Palestinians are. He names the company Palestinian Hustle and won't even take credit. Palestinians, we're full spectrum people because we tackle everything in a full spectrum, whether it's music, art, you guys with like politics and comedy and music and depth and food, people fighting for the same cause but doing it differently if i was a barista and somebody came in and was like you know about palestine i'd be like bro i get off in 10 minutes like come on <laughs> yeah, because you go on these mission trips to teach at a school in jerusalem and you think you're going to the holy land and israel this and you go you're treated like shit by the israelis and the palestinians are feeding you every day they go there being pro-israel they leave so pro-palestinian i measure success in this field by the number of people who message me and say you changed my mind we are announcing a limited t-shirt drop, Palestinian Hustle and the Palestine Pod. The Palestine Pod has merch, y'all. Because it's the Palestine Pod.